electrify everything really is the pathway to making huge uh, gains on reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and that means a lot of renewables on the system. And that raises this challenge, which California is way ahead of almost anyone else in the world on, of keeping the system in balance. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. You know, when thoughtful people consider policies to reduce carbon dioxide emissions to help address climate change, substantial attention is frequently given to one sector, and that's the electric power sector, partly because of its standing as the first or second largest source of emissions in many countries, and partly because it frequently presents low-hanging fruit, that is, low-cost abatement opportunities. Today, we're very fortunate to host for this conversation an economist who has spent close to four decades studying the electricity sector, making important contributions both to scholarship and to the design of public policies, and who also has great expertise in the broader realm of regulatory economics and industrial organization. I'm referring to Severin Bornstein, who is professor of the Graduate School at the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley, where he is the longtime director of its highly regarded Energy Institute. Welcome, Severin. Great to be with you. So before we talk about your research and your current thinking about environmental energy policy, I always like to go back to how you came to be where you are. So where did you grow up? Thanks, Rob. Yeah, I grew up in Berkeley, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, worked my way back across the country after graduate school to eventually land back here again. So did that mean primary school and high school in Berkeley? Yeah, I went to Berkeley High School. I uh, then went off to college for a couple of years to Carleton College in Minnesota. And then I came back and finished at UC Berkeley. I worked at the Civil Aeronautics Board during airline deregulation in 1978 and 79, which was a really formative uh, experience for me before I went to graduate school at MIT. Would that be Fred Kahn days? Yep. Fred was my boss's boss, and Bob Frank at uh -huh. uh, Cornell University was uh, my immediate boss. Uh, I It was basically a bunch of economists trying to figure out how to reduce regulation in the industry in a way that would benefit consumers. Uh, and it was just a fabulous experience. So I started studying airlines and uh, went off to graduate school. And that was where the primary thing I focused on in my dissertation. So that was a, a very significant time at uh, CAB um, in terms of deregulation of airlines, wasn't it? Yeah. So when I got there in the summer of 1978, um, Fred Kahn had just committed to deregulating the airlines uh, and the Congress had not actually passed the Airline Deregulation Act yet, which they did a few months later. And during the time I was there, we basically instituted mm -hmm. uh, the process of deregulation, which was a very complex process in terms of opening up entry of airlines to new routes, uh, reducing and eliminating regulation of pricing, 
figuring out how to set rules like uh, denied boarding compensation. Uh, and so there was just a huge amount of regulatory change going on. And with an economist at the helm of the organization, uh, a lot of that was based on economic reasoning. And so the economic group that I was in uh, played a big role in it. So indeed it was, but I should tell you at the same time as you were there, I was at Cornell finishing up my master's degree in agricultural economics before I moved on. And Fred Kahn was not a popular fellow among the Cornell faculty because all the direct flights, the uneconomic direct flights that existed from Ithaca, New York to Washington, D.C. and other places were eliminated. And at that time, then you had to begin to drive to Syracuse, which I think you still do, in order to get a significant flight out. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there were a lot of uneconomic flights that were being cross-subsidized by the airlines yeah. uh, in order to maintain other routes that were highly profitable. And uh, one of the things airline deregulation did is it uh, reduced and in some case eliminated nonstop flights to some uh, less on some less traveled routes. And eventually what we got is this hub and spoke system that's evolved. That's right. And much lower prices mm -hmm. and higher mm -hmm. load factors. Uh, right. And I spent a significant part of my career for the first six years of my career studying the evolution of competition in the airline industry and continued after that. But uh, the beginning of my career was doing the industrial organization of airlines, including studying price discrimination, which, of course, if you studied airlines, you had to. Yep. And that's how I evolved into studying energy, because one day in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I was teaching at the University of Michigan, I talked to uh, the owner of a gas station who was charging the same price for leaded and unleaded gasoline, which was very unusual. All the other stations were charging more for unleaded. And he explained to me that uh, they actually paid the same wholesale price for the two types of gasoline, but they could, but they could charge more for unleaded, so right. the other stations did. And that got me interested in pricing in the gasoline market, which eventually led me to working on oil markets, which led me to being appointed director of what was then called the University of California Energy Institute in 1994. By then, I had moved to UC Davis. And uh, at that happened to be the year when California started down the road of electricity deregulation. Now, before we jump into electricity deregulation, let me back you up a bit, because you mentioned about going on after your time at college and at CAB to graduate school. That was a PhD at MIT, I believe. Who was your, yeah. What was your dissertation topic and who were your advisors? So Dick Schmollensy was the chair of my dissertation committee. Great. He's been and, a guest on this podcast. Yes, and I have been stayed close to him throughout my career, as well as Paul Joskow, who was also on my dissertation committee. What a dynamic duo you yeah. had there. And Garth Saloner, who was an assistant professor then and went over to Stanford shortly afterwards. So I had an all-star team on my dissertation committee, and that was great. And I learned a huge amount from them. So as you said, you you finished up there. You went to the University of Michigan. You're an assistant professor there. Then you went on to be, I think, an associate professor, then full professor at UC Davis. That's right. But eventually, you did return home to Berkeley 
to the Haas School of Business in 1996. So what brought you back from Davis to Berkeley? Well, I was actually at that time sort of splitting my time because I had a been appointed the uh, director of the UC Energy Institute, Uh which was at Berkeley, although it was a system-wide university institute. And uh, I was, but the other half of my position was at Davis. By that time, my wife and I had moved to the Bay Area, so I was doing a long commute back to Davis. And when I got the opportunity to move my academic position to UC Berkeley, to the Haas School of Business, I jumped at it. Uh, It was a great move. And I have been very happy here. And uh, returning to the Bay Area was really a dream of mine, not one I really thought would ever happen. Uh, but it was mm-hmm. great to be able to come back. Now, were, were you the founding director of the Energy Institute or did that predate you? No, it actually was created in the late 70s. Oh, as geez. Part of the energy crisis of the uh-huh. 70s. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, it was originally directed by an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by uh, another economist, Rich Gilbert, uh, mm-hmm. an industrial organization economist. Um, and then I was the third director of it. Now, I, I have to mention that, speaking of the Energy Institute at Berkeley, that people that are listening to this podcast may also be readers of blogs. And if to all of our listeners, if you are interested in electricity policy, particularly an economic perspective on electricity policy, there is no better source than the blogs, which come out with remarkable regularity from your institute. Is there a way that you could tell us how to access that blog? Sure. Um, if you Basically, type in Energy Institute at Haas in any search engine. It will take you to the Energy Institute's website. And there at the top, there is a link to go to our blog. Um, it is uh, comes out every Monday. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a rotation of six or seven energy economists who are all affiliated with the Energy Institute at Haas. And we cover a variety of topics. We cover a lot of electricity policy, both wholesale and retail policy, uh, climate change and greenhouse gases and uh, tradable emissions markets, and also gasoline and mm-hmm. oil markets and, uh, ga- and competition in gasoline markets. So we, it's, it's a pretty broad spectrum. Uh, and we try to keep it very readable. Uh, we have sort of an internal editing process that uh, seems to smooth the posts out pretty well. And uh, yeah, we, I think in many ways, the most impactful writing I've ever done is those blog posts. They are much more widely read than one of my journal articles. You mentioned that you have an internal editing process that shows those are extremely well written. So my kudos to the person, persons or process who does the editing. Well, it's a team. It's all of the bloggers. Uh, We send it around a few days before it posts and we get feedback from the other bloggers. And we're we're really um, a team on the editing front. So let's turn to your work, Severin, in the world of environmental and energy economic research. Um, Over this nearly four decades since your PhD degree in 1983, you've presumably seen some significant changes Uh, not only in the policy world, we'd already talked about that, some of those changes, both in terms of 
airline deregulation and then in terms of introduction to competition and restructuring in electricity. But you've also seen changes within the scholarly world. Can you comment on, you know, one or two highlights? What really stands out to you about the changes that you've seen in the scholarly world during your career? Well, I think the biggest change that I've seen, and maybe it's just going from an assistant professor to more senior, is the real openness to doing work that has immediate policy implications, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, so many of us, particularly in the area of environmental and energy economics, got into this not just to do economics, but to really have an impact on policy. We we want it was a tool to help address so many problems that the world faces. Mm-hmm. And I think that the openness to doing work on issues that are of immediate policy relevance, uh, you know, the one of the most recent papers I published was on cap and trade systems in right. California mm-hmm. uh, that ended up coming out of the American Economic Review, even though it basically started out as a stress testing exercise Mm -hmm. to see whether California's design of cap and trade markets uh, would really be able to stand up. I know that paper well, and I assign it to my class. Thank you, Rob. Um, And so I think the advice I give to my graduate students these days is work on things you're passionate about, Mm -hmm. because whether it gets published in a top journal or somewhere else, uh, you will still find it satisfying that you wrote the paper and you can often have a real policy impact, even if it's not published in one of the top journals. Speaking of your papers, though, let me let me ask you, um, when you reflect back on you know your very long CV of published work, other than that very recent paper, um, is what's one that you that stands out that you're just most proud of? Well, I'm going to cheat and name two. Okay. One was uh, in 1989, I published a paper in the Rand Journal of Economics on hub dominance and airline pricing hmm. that okay. uh, pointed out the, the phenomenon that when airlines are able to dominate hubs, they develops a lot of market power. Mm-hmm. And that had a lot of policy impact. And then in 2002, uh, we published a paper, Frank Wolak and Jim Bushnell and I published a paper in the American Economic Review on competition in electricity markets. And this right. was right after the California electricity crisis mm-hmm. that pointed out not just that there were real potential problems, which Jim Bushnell and I had published in an earlier paper through some simulations, but that California had really followed exactly the sort of problems that we anticipated when Mm -hmm. you have very inelastic demand and Mm -hmm. you hit a supply constraint, even players with very small shares of the market were able to exercise market power. And that paper had some direct impacts on the way the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the various ISOs and market monitors uh, changed the way they evaluated competition in uh, electricity markets. So I found that very satisfying. You mentioned ISOs, and I take note of the fact that you're a member of the Board of Governors of the California Independent Systems Operator, or ISO, probably not everyone, particularly those from other parts of the world who are listening, 
know what an ISO is. So can you get, give a very brief definition yeah. and also very briefly tell me what's your role on the Board of Governors? So historically, before we deregulated electricity markets, every utility controlled the flow of power on its wires in its service territory. But when we start opening up those markets, you got to have a traffic cop who controls the flow of power across all of the wires within the market. And that's what ISOs do, independent system operators, sometimes called regional transmission operators. Uh, and so they, the utilities that become part of those ISOs commit to basically letting the ISO run the transmission system and being responsible for balancing the whole system because, of course, electricity has to be constantly keeping supply and demand in balance. So that's what ISOs do. Uh, they run markets for electricity, but they also do the engineering to make sure the power system is physically in balance. And what does the Board of Governors do? Well, the Board of Governors is the board of uh, is uh, like the board of any corporation. Uh, mm -hmm. We're not involved in the day to day operations. Uh, we meet uh, seven to ten times a year. Uh, we uh, oversee the CEO and the leadership team. The big decisions of the corporation come to us. And because of FERC regulation, some of the not so big decisions that are still required to be approved by boards. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the biggest surprise I've had, I got, you know, I joined it thinking this is really going to be great. We're going to talk about policy all of the time and how to structure electricity markets and issues of, of uh, expanding the market. A lot of being on a corporate board is HR, basically. It's uh, hiring C the CEO and setting compensation and doing reviews and stuff that's more mundane than I appreciate it. Right. It's part of the everyday oversight of the corporation. Well, let, we can turn that away from the mundane. And instead, I want to ask you to think more broadly in regard to energy and climate change policy, either of those. And what's, what's your single greatest concern today? Well, I'm going to go a little narrow and think about electricity markets because, of course, we need electrify everything really is the pathway to making huge uh, gains on reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means a lot of renewables on the system. And that raises this challenge, which California is way ahead of almost anyone else in the world on, of keeping the system in balance mm -hmm. when you have a lot of intermittent, non-dispatchable generation. Uh, you can, of course, do it with batteries, but batteries are extremely expensive uh, if, you're, if you're talking about long-term storage and having enough power to get through uh, cold winter and so forth. You can do it with more trade uh, in the rest with other areas that have different production patterns, and that's great. Um, we aren't doing nearly enough of that, and we're really not doing nearly enough of that in the West, where California is an ISO, but the rest of the West is the old model where each uh, utility controls its own balancing authority. Now, you didn't mention transmission lines. Is it, I don't know if that's an issue in California, but in other parts of the country, that certainly is. What's the Oh, yeah. No, the, the two big challenges, I would say, in making this all hang together mm -hmm. are building more transmission in order to accommodate more long-distance trade 
because there's just such huge gains from being mm-hmm. able to trade power. It's it's not like trading good, most goods where the means of production can be replicated pretty easily. Once you start using renewable energy, there are places that are fabulous for producing wind power and places that really aren't. And so we need to build more transmission. The other piece is demand response. And mm-hmm. here's a place I think we are just doing an awful job, not just in California, but in the US generally, we have not gone down the road very far at all of using demand response to help balance the system. And I think that's just a huge waste. There's plenty of electricity demand that is absolutely critical, but there's also plenty that's not. And if we can send the signals, now's not the right time to charge your car, or or it would be better if you could shift your electric dryer to later in the evening or middle of the day when we have plenty of solar, uh, we could make this a lot easier. And no one that I'm aware of has gotten very far in doing that. And I think that's a real disappointment and challenge. Now, a lot of these changes that have taken place or might take place have not only implications for efficiency or cost effectiveness, but distributional implications. And as you well know, Severin, in the policy world and in the scholarly world as well, there is a lot more attention than there was a few years ago, although I know it started quite early in California, to environmental justice and just transition. Those are those two phrases. Frequently in the context of climate change policy, what's your reaction to that increased attention? Yeah, this is an area when I was in graduate school in economics that just got almost no coverage at all. And I think that was a real mistake. Uh, economic theory tells you that you can just maximize efficiency, make the pie as big as possible, and then you know deal later with redistributing it fairly. And that's just not how the world works, both in political process, but also in actual implementation. If we never get to redi- the redistribution, then those policies have huge impacts that we're neglecting. So I actually got interested in this about 15 years ago and started working on distributional consequences of electricity rate design, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think has gotten, uh, you know, there's there are specific political players who get involved and try to push the policy. But the economic analysis has really been lacking. The most more recent thing I've been involved in is working with Meredith Fowley, who I think has Mm -hmm. been on your show and talked about this, and Jim Salee on looking at the rates in California and how regressive it is that we are paying for all sorts of policies through higher electricity rates, uh, which has, first of all, it's very regressive. We're laying the cost of of wildfire damages and uh, climate change adaptation and mitigation uh, disproportionately on low income. But secondly, those incredibly high rates are discouraging things like heat pump water heaters and heat pump space heating and electric vehicles and induction stoves. And so we're trying to really, with that research, influence the policy. And we have had a bit of influence in California, and we're starting to see more nationwide on the way we set rates and more sensitivity to uh, the impact it has on disadvantaged communities. So thank you for that. And, you know, we're coming to the end of our available time. And so I'd I'd like to move at the very end here from 
uh, scholarly work, policy work, to really what's the world of activism. And in particular, I'm interested in your reaction to the youth activism that has increased so dramatically over the past, perhaps it's the past five or six years, most prominently the leadership of Greta Thunberg, but much more broadly than that, particularly in Europe and the United States. I suspect that you experience it in what has for many years been the focal point of youth activism in the United States, Berkeley, California. What's your reaction to this? You know, I find this incredibly heartening. I think we really, uh, it's so clear that the response we need to climate change is going to take a lot of paradigm shifting. And it's also clear that the older you get, the harder it is to shift paradigms. So the youth activism is really mm -hmm. forcing the us old fogies to mm -hmm. think of the world differently. And one of the directions, of course, is the one you just raised about environmental justice, the need to incorporate mm -hmm. environmental justice into uh, the transition. But more generally, in the way we use energy, the way we think about uh, consumption and so forth, uh, these are things that when, and the ability to get off fossil fuels, these are things that when you ask someone over 50, you're likely to get a very different answer than when you ask someone under 30. Right. And uh, I think the youth movement is really important. Now, I don't agree with everything I hear, of course, mm -hmm. and sometimes it seems unrealistic or idealistic, but I think that we're not going to get there without some pretty major paradigm shift. And I don't think that that's likely to come from uh, the older set. I think younger people are the ones who have the creativity and openness to new ways of the world being that uh, they are going to be the ones who can point in directions that really uh, can change the world. Well, that's a great point on which to bring this to a close. So thank you very much, Severin, for taking time to join me today. It was great to be with you, Rob. Thanks for inviting me on. My guest today has been Severin Bornstein, professor at the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley, where he directs the Energy Institute. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.